0: The Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Land Trust. Have you heard how landowners are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use? Millions of outdoor recreators seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Landowners are partnering with the Recreation Access Network, Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit LandTrust.com slash BOA, as in business of agriculture, to learn more. That's LandTrust.com slash BOA.
1: Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, Damian Mason, joined by my co-host, frequent guest of the Business of Ag podcast. He's also my partner with the Business of Ag Success Group, an ag networking uh, uh, thing that we created for ag professionals, which we encourage you to join. It's just $99 a month. Uh, But you don't have to be a member of the Business of Ag Success Group to listen to this podcast right here. We're covering great topics, including today's topic, which is about Biden's meat policy. Uh, A lot of talk about it in the industry. You know, it's about a $213 billion industry is uh, what my research says. That is the meat business in the United States. Uh, North American Meat Institute has been a client of mine. Every commodity group has been a client of mine from pork to poultry to beef. And I've worked for these people and I'm around them. And it is a really big, big business that's kind of controlled by not very many packers and processors. That is what allegedly this legislation seeks to change. Todd, the founder of Swine Techs, he's a livestock consultant. He also is, uh, as I said, my partner on the Business of Ag Success Group and a smart dude. One of the smartest Texans you're ever going to meet. Of course, (laughs) come on, bar's pretty low. All right. Joking. Love my Texas friends. Todd, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. All right. You've got a lot of opinions on this, which is why I have you on here. This is a hot topic. Uh, We've been hearing about it for a while. Uh, Back in uh, May, June, I had a a client, I'm sorry, a, a guest on. We talked about the Packers really being in charge of the beef industry. He was a beef feeder himself in Iowa, as well as a commodities broker. And he said, you know, I'm selling steers for break even. And uh, every steer that walks through that processing facility is making about a buck a pound, you know, 80 80 cents to a dollar a pound, $1,100 per animal. And I said, that seems really screwy. Well, beef is particularly tilted toward the packer processors. Like four big companies control about 80 to 85% of all the beef that is packaged, processed, and, and eaten here in the United States of America. Uh, my reading says about 54% of the poultry is controlled by four bigs. We've got a big bunch of packers and processors. They do have a lot of control. They do get their wrists slapped or at least threatened from the government every now and again. Give me the whole scoop here. What the hell's happening? And then we'll talk about whether Biden's billion-dollar plan is going to do anything.
2: Well, I think one of the things that's been missed in this discussion over the last several days since the White House announced their plan is that this is a a long-term trend, right? This has been going on for 20, 25 years. It seems like some people are kind of unaware of that, that this is a recent development, all of a sudden, you know, a year and a half ago, these companies decided to take over the industry. I mean, this has been happening for quite some time, and it's being driven by industry economics. I mean, the the economics of commodity meat production have become increasingly difficult. I know you and I have had a conversation several times. I bring my Chinese clients over to the U.S., and I walk them through the economics of the U.S. pork industry, and I get the same response every time. Why in the world would somebody want to invest in this? Right? It's it's high capital. It's a, you know there's huge barriers to entry. It's heavily regulated, and the margins are pretty modest, especially mm-hmm. when you consider the amount of, of of headaches and capital that have to be deployed in order to uh, get into this business. Right? It just and, and doesn't by, make by the way, sense. I, I
1: want I want to share this with our we have listeners that aren't just ag people. A uh, good friend of mine, uh, college roommate, listens to it. And the numbers, sometimes he, he listens. So I do want to share what you just said. Just for an example, uh, I can run this a lot of ways. I can talk my my dairy farmer who, who rents my land and the sort of poultry returns he gets. Uh, this is everything in our industry, but particularly on livestock. The margins, as you said, your Chinese clients are like, why would you invest in this? you've got uh, how many tens of millions of dollars of capital deployed plus you have the threat of, of electrical outages where we've got to have generators and and can we get to market if there's a blizzard and we've got uh, how many employees out here? what kind of margins are we talking about Todd like single digit sometimes percentages
2: yeah when we do long-term business planning in the uh, pork industry, <clears throat> we're looking at eight to ten dollar ahead margins. Um, you know, and obviously there's going to be a lot of volatility there. There's going to be periods of time that are pretty good where you're making, you know, $40 a hit, which is great, but there's going to be periods of time where you're losing $40 a hit. And so, you know, that's, that's what we usually use in terms of you know long-term meaning 10 or 20 year business plans if you're looking at building a new farm or whatever and they come to me and ask what should i plan on i would say somewhere around eight to ten dollars a head margin that's just not very much money when you're talking about deploying millions and millions of dollars of capital now that, and, well, and i think
1: those numbers maybe to the non-pork person or to even the non-ag person don't mean much okay eight bucks per pig you're You're going to have you're going to own that pig from the time it comes out of the sow until it's a fattened hog. Uh, What is that? Six months. Yeah. Okay. so you kept an animal alive, fed it, had all of the manure handling, the environmental compliance, the building, the environment, you know, the the, uh, infrastructure, et cetera, the employees to make eight bucks. And so the bigger thing on a percentage basis, that pig is going to sell that hog is going to sell 280 pounds when it goes to butcher roughly 285 pounds when it goes to butcher and right now we're talking about 70 cents yeah, yeah. okay so 70 cents on 285 running that number that means that that pig is uh, what is that 285 times 0. 0.7 is about uh seven times 285 that's a 200 pig right now fat hog mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. and i made eight dollars <laughs> so let's just take eight and divide it by eight divided by 200 Means that's a four percent profit margin on that pig. So mm-hmm. I, I just I, I had to run those numbers with our listener because there are folks and most of our people obviously are ag, but you know some are not. Where else would you put millions of dollars of capital into into work and do the work and take the risk on a four percent return? And that's what you're talking about here. Yeah, that's at, the, that's at the production level though. Now it goes in, into the Tyson, Cargill, name the other company. I'm not picking on any of them. It goes into their system and then
2: they, they, they kill it. Then what happens? Yeah. So the profit margins are going to be a little bit higher on, on meat processing and even higher on retail, but the risks are a lot bigger and the costs are again, are a lot bigger. I mean, it's a cost a lot of money to build a a modern packing plant. Uh, You got a lot of headaches in terms of labor. we've talked about uh, that, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more here, too. I think that's one of the big points that everybody is missing is the labor piece. But, uh, you know, so you've got some, some better margins there on the packing side, um, but still not, you know, really attractive. You know, it's still hard to imagine that if you weren't involved in the industry at all and you didn't have any expertise and you didn't have any, you know, Uh, other investments that you're trying to leverage that you'd be really interested in jumping into the meatpacking industry. I mean, I don't think Apple is probably going to diversify into meatpacking anytime soon. I don't think Elon Musk is really targeting meatpacking as a, as a real uh, attractive venture. You know, it's just the reality is is these are relatively low margin businesses with a very high uh, regulatory environment and a very high capital uh, cost of entry, you know, barrier, uh, around that. So, you know, it's just not a really, it's just really not a very attractive business. And the better we get at doing it, the less attractive it seems to be. And that's really what's been driving this consolidation is those, as those margins go down, you have to get bigger and bigger to be able to make that make any sense at all. So yeah, those it's, really low margins just don't make any sense at a small scale. And they make actually a little bit better sense at a bigger scale.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the it is the epitome. Uh, I mean, because a person can read this or see it on. It was on CNN. I mean, I'm just going to cover real quickly uh, where this was all mentioned. But it, it this got a lot of play. You know, when my non-ag people were sending me notes. Did you see this? Did you see this? The New Republic, New York Post, CNN, uh, MSNBC, Wall Street Journal. Of course, it went around the it went around the horn. And guys like you and me are getting called like, well, hey, is this going to matter? And as and we're going to talk about whether Joe Biden's plan is going to change any of this. But since we're trying to paint a picture of what the industry looks like, let's go ahead and do a little backdrop on the industry to people that are even somebody might be listening to this that sells tractors and they're like, hey, I don't really know what's going on. So that's why I tune into the Business of Ag podcast. Poultry was the first to become hugely vertically integrated. When I was a kid, there was a chicken bar- independent, meaning you and your spouse had 80 acres, maybe the wife was a school teacher, covered insurance, uh, and then you farmed a little bit, and you said, I need to make more money. I'm gonna build me a chicken barn. And you had chicken barns. And then all of a sudden by the 1970s, the chicken profitability on the barn became almost very little. So then we moved into, as you talk about there, uh, more commodity uh, mindset, conglomerates, vertically integrated. Now chickens are produced where if you have a chicken barn, it probably, that chicken is not even owned by you. You get paid to take care of the barn. You get the manure uh, to put on your fields. And then those chickens are already in the system to go into Tyson Ch- Purdue, name name the uh, producer processor. Then it happened in pork that way in the 1990s when uh, pork became Almost you couldn't you couldn't justify it. And now we've got it. So the beef is not as vertically integrated, but it kind of de facto is because the packers have tremendous amount of market power and then can sort of dictate what where they're getting their stuff from. But The point is, this marketplace has always been one of more consolidation and one where the producer worked for very little margins. You talked about we just about four percent on pigs. You don't work for hardly anything on poultry. You don't work for really hardly anything on beef. <laughs> Who is making the money? I mean, you're saying that the, the packer isn't. Well, where the hell's the money
2: being made? Well, the, 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 the money is, if you just follow the money, it's mainly at the retail level. But again, the, the grocery business is, is not exactly a panacea either. Yeah, there's a lot of margin to be had there. But that is a tough, tough, tough business that ultimately... <laughs> operates at pretty small margins as well because they have a lot of issues that they have to deal with in terms of, of wastage and, you know, product life and, and I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a nightmare. Anybody that, that uh, grew up in the grocery business will tell you that it's just a really tough way to make a living. Yeah. I think grocery um, stores operate. I think the most
1: profitable has been a few years since I looked whole foods was operating at like a five and a half percent margin and the Kroger Walmart, uh, you know, we're at like two, two and a half. So (laughs) I'd hardly say that they're getting rich on all of this. So is the answer just that there's no margin there because uh, my beef feeders would counter (laughs) those beef processor packers. They were making a dollar a pound uh, and I'm making nothing. So how is it? What gives there?
2: Well, I think the reality is that they have made more consistent profits and that's really where the, the issue lies that they don't, you know, generally lose money for long periods of time, like producers sometimes do. And so those can be very difficult to manage. And so I think, you know, well, and I've been encouraging the pork industry to think about is live pork production is essentially a breakeven business. When you consider everything that, that goes into it, you have to think about it as a break-even business. And, and how is that going to be sustainable? And the only reason that it's, you know, really even makes any sense at all, or really kind of external factors. You know, why is that, why is that uh, uh, contract finishing producer in Iowa still in the pig business? You go ask them, go sit down and ask them. And they'll tell you You know, the, the main reason they're still in it is because they want the manure, right? Yeah, the main yeah, reason they use is because the manure is, use the, the the manure is worth product, a lot of man- money.
1: Yeah, the, the byproduct manure becomes a fertility issue that they can put on their field. So they're producing pork for free or for very little money. So then they get the
2: uh, the manure out of it. Um, yeah. So, you know, you just have to ask yourself, you know, how sustainable, you know, is that model long term? Um, and is and is a modern pork system going to be able to, to survive that way? And so I think, you know, this discussion uh, really revolves around in a lot of ways, providing some tools to producers to help them manage that volatility. You know, low margins is is doable. You know, high cost of capital is doable. But when you add volatility into that piece, those three things together, high volatility, low margins, and 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 high capital requirements, to me, the combination of those three things are not sustainable. So you're gonna to have to address at least one of those three legs. And I think the one that's probably easiest to address is is trying to help provide tools to producers that make their uh give them more uh usable risk management tools to reduce that volatility.
1: Okay. Uh that that might happen. What we're talking about on this plan. So we already are talking about an industry that it it is very oligopolistic. There are you know, there's a reason on uh, a year ago, uh, you know, one of the big meat companies sent their people to Washington and ran all uh, full page ads in The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, Washington Post, whatever there was a bit of lobbying that went on there um, by the big protein processors. Um, So they're not they're not um, certainly um, willing to uh, to not they're they're not out there admitting, oh, no, no, boy, there's there's hundreds of companies doing this. They know that they control a significant amount of the protein you're saying, but they're also not making gazillions of profits. Um, So the answer is nobody's making money. Joe Biden's plan or the Biden administration rolls out. You and I both read it. This is out of the Wall Street. I've seen it everywhere. I've seen, like I just named the the outlets that were covering it. Essentially, it doesn't boil down to breaking these companies up. You know, you start talking about antitrust. You think, okay, let's break them up. Um, We've done that before. Uh, The Bell system is the best example I can use. Telecommunications, when I was a little kid, you had to go to the phone company to buy your phone. And I'm talking about to buy the thing that you put in your house, uh, that dial-up thing, that thing that had buttons on it. Um, they were essentially in charge of all of our telecommunications. They get broken up and you'd say, okay, that's good. Woo, yeah. Well, what's telecommunications look like now? First off, nobody even has a landline. You don't have to go to a store, to uh, to the actual phone store and pay their premium to pick up the phone. But you still only have four companies that are in charge of, all telecommunications in the United States of America. you got Verizon, you've got uh, what? uh, T-Mobile, you've got uh, Sprint. I mean, you got four companies, right? Does breaking up these big meat companies, does that accomplish anything? We did it in telecom. I'm not sure
2: that it does. I I think in the short term, it possibly could. um, But I'm not sure that that's the case. And I'm not sure that it doesn't result and higher prices for consumers, I think that's part of the problem. If you start thinking about breaking up the the big meat companies, you also dismantle what they offer to the the food system, and that is very efficiently produced meat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, we 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 produce meat as efficiently as anywhere else in the world, and you know, there's and, and, aspects
1: inexpensively.
2: Yes. And there, I mean, there's aspects of the production chain that we're not always the best at, you know, on the pork side, uh, you know, in sow farm production, Europe will is significantly better than the U.S. But if you take everything into consideration, going from the you know, input side on the grains through the, the production and the meat processing, we are by far the most efficient in the world. And so when you start breaking that up, that, you know, to some degree is driven by scale. And that starts to break down. So I I don't know. I think what happens if you break up the meat industry. I'm sure you could write a book on that. Um, And and I'm certainly not qualified to answer what would happen. But I think for purposes of this discussion, that's not what they're proposing. No, you know, a, a, the, point,
1: the point is, the I was yeah. saying, if you are talking about tackling an anti-competitive meat environment where producers, because they they're saying the issue isn't even about the producers. I don't, I didn't see anything in my reading about the Biden plans uh, thing. It, it does eventually in the in by paragraph, you know, number six, something about and help producers, meaning farmers, have a more of choices, but again. If that really were to happen, if all of a sudden, if the farmer can make more money, that's going to come from somewhere. Either the consumers paying more, or the packer, processor, or retailer are giving up. Right? I mean, th- this money doesn't just just you know come out of thin air. So I saw it as uh, first off, it was it, it says to tackle meat prices. Well, they don't mean for the farmer because the they just care about the consumer. So then I thought, well, what's the tackle? Is it going to be to break up the big meat companies? None of it said that. I thought that was going to be the plan. The plan instead says we're going to throw a billion dollars. Now, it was already announced back in the fall. They're going to throw 500 million. So they've doubled that. they are going to throw a billion dollars to be dedicated to expanding independent meat processing. That's what the plan says. $1 billion to be dedicated to expanding independent meat processing. So, again, we're not talking about breaking up the big three, four, five, six meat companies. We're talking about that. And you've read where that money goes. Talk to me.
2: Yeah. So, as best I can tell, it's a little bit obscure, like most of these proposals are. They leave a lot of flexibility in there to make changes. But it looks to me like in terms of direct you know, payments and to encourage the expansion of, quote-unquote, small plants. Um, is about $375 million, okay? So if we use $375 million as, as the number, that's going to go directly towards, you know, presumably incentivizing people to build a plant. If we just assume that goes directly there, you know, the, the question I think that nobody has answered yet is, is, what are they talking about? Are they talking about a small plant being a port plant that processes 2,500 head a day? You know, that would be, you know, an industrial scale for sure. Um, but relatively small. I mean, the average, you know, typical big pork plant in the U.S. would process 10,000 a day. So that would be roughly, you know, one-fourth of that. And and Um, by
1: the way, it's funny because there's nobody that thinks, if you said, oh, we're going to be this small little meat company, what's that mean? Oh, we're going to have 2,500 hogs that weigh almost 300 pounds each coming through here. Nobody, again, that's our customers, the person that's out here, in my suburban Phoenix neighbor be like, 2500 fat hogs come through there a day and 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 end up hanging on a rail and that's small but by scale that's not a huge meat processing facility
2: Right. So if that's what we're talking about, which again I don't know what they're talking about. I'm having to, you know, extrapolate based on what we do know. But if that's what they're talking about, then for that three hundred and seventy-five million, you can build about ten plants. But there'd be about thirty-five million to build a plant like that. Now that's just the you know, it doesn't include the cost of ramping up and labor and right. all that. So kind of stuff.
1: I'm gonna run my numbers here, get my calculator again because uh, Todd's always good enough. Ten plants times twenty five hundred pigs, of course, is twenty-five thousand pigs per day that we just added. Which seems like a lot, um, and we, but it's and really... We don't, a, don't we generally kill about five to five and a half days per, per about,
2: week? You know, six days, basically. Okay, I'll take So if you, if you do the math, it comes out to about 5% of increase in your daily processing capacity. That's 150,000
1: hogs per week that we just added. But in the United States of America, we process something like 2 million
2: yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's about 5%. Um, and, and, and then, you know, so it, it's a, you know, not insignificant, but hardly game changing, right. It's it's not going to make any, you know, real fundamental difference in the, in the industry. Um, and so to, together they would represent a 5% market share, right. And there's 10 of them, right. So the, the individual market share, you're talking about, you know, of each of those individual plants, because we're not talking about creating uh, you know, a company that would have 10 plants. We're talking about 10, presumably 10 different companies. And so each of those, you know, becomes a a, a Mazda in the in the U.S. Uh, auto industry. Yeah, I mean, it's not yeah, a, it's not well, creating yeah. another Ford. It's creating a Mazda.
1: Yeah. So, you know, Mazda, which, of course, has about half a percent. So we kill about two point seven, two point eight million pigs a week, I think, is the number I last remember. You're saying it's close to three million hogs we kill per week
2: process here in the United States. Right. Yep. Yes, so, it's so somewhere in that yeah, somewhere in that five percent range is what you're talking about. Okay.
1: So yes, yeah, so we just added five percent, as you said. That's five percent is divided between you and I. Own one of them, so now we own half of one percent of our with our plant, which is not an insignificant plant. You know, we're we're doing twenty five hundred pigs a day, but as you said, in the scope of things, it, we didn't do much. So the big picture here is three hundred seventy five million of that one billion is supposed to be for new well, facilities.
2: Right. And so, you know, and the other example, again, we it don't know exactly the what wood. they're talking about there. And so, you know, I, I looked at, okay, what if we're talking about a small, you know, relatively small custom processor, you know? So this is a, 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 a place that might process 20 head of cattle a week. Okay. So this is small. Um, that's still going to cost you a little over a million dollars to build a, a processing facility that would process 20 head of cattle a week. Um, but if you do the math, again, go through the same steps there. You're talking about building a lot of plants, obviously, because right. you know, you're building small plants, very small plants, but it still adds up to about 1% total. You're building like 300 plants that amount to about 1% of the total uh, uh, beef cattle kill uh, on, a, on a daily basis. So um, you know, you're really talking about very limited impact. And then as you start talking about those really small plants, you're t- talking about plants that operate extremely inefficiently. Okay. And when we talk about efficiency, I think one of the mistakes we make in the industry is people don't understand the, the, uh, the impact of what we're talking about, how more efficient those big plants are. If you just look at cost of production compared to a large you know, beef plant operating today by one of the you know, big producers, you're talking about cost of processing that's three times, sometimes even more Uh, than than it is with one of these big processors. So we're talking about extremely high processing costs, right? right? And obviously that gets passed on to consumers. Now, you might argue they might get a better quality of product. Probably do. You um, You know, it's not like they're not getting what they're paying for, but they're paying a lot more because it's a lot less efficient.
1: Yeah. I mean, let's face it. I, I was in a, you know, small scale beef production for 13 years and I still get some steers from my friend and take them down to my neighborhood beef processing place that probably does, like you said, uh, call it, uh, they, they do uh, a dozen steers and a dozen pigs a week. I, I, let's just say it's, it's nice. It's quaint. And I like the product and also compared it'd be like you and I attempting to build a car in my barn versus what the people at toyota do and uh and and it's just about at that scale i mean it's just about that much difference of scale me and you killing a dozen steers per week and cutting them and processing in our facility compared to what uh national beef does in dodge city kansas becomes you and me building a car in my barn versus what toyota does i think that that's honestly the comparison so of course there's a matter of scale and there's a matter of efficiency and there's a matter of Is any of this going to matter?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I I just don't think the amount of money that we're talking about, really, no matter how it's allocated, Mm -hmm. if it's invested in, you know, trying to encourage, you know, the development of smaller scale, you know, processors that are going to somehow compete with these, you know, big producers, just, just not enough money there. And I'm not sure that even if they did allocate, you know, even a substantial, you know, substantially bigger amount of money that it would really be enough to, to make an impact because, you know, there's a reason, like I said, you know, at the end of the day, you can, you can put that money out there, but if, if, if those, if that business is not going to operate at a substantial profit, then it, then somebody's going to allocate their, their share of that capital somewhere else where they're going to get a better return. So, um, you know, so I, I just really don't think it's an amount of money that is going to be significant enough to make, have any impact. It's certainly not going to have any impact in the short term. You know, I mean, these, these plants take time to build and even small plants you know, take yeah. time to build. And, 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 I mean, so you're talking about, you know, many, many months and a bunch of regulatory hoops that you have to jump through. And so, you know, this being considered a, a solution to short-term meat prices, is just absurd. Um, you know, but even in the the medium and long term, I'm just not sure that it would have much meaningful impact. And again, yeah, the, I'm not anti small processing. I mean, like you mentioned, I we do some of that type of business myself. You know, on this on the side, I like to I like to go buy a, a half a beef or a quarter of beef yeah. and put it in my freezer. It's a better product. I pay a lot more for it. I know I'm going to pay a lot more for it. Um, you know, but but that's something that that I I certainly don't discourage. And it's a it's a it's a great way for small producers to. To, to make some money, but it's not a replacement for large scale commodity meat production.
1: Okay. Now there's people listening to this right now that don't like what you're saying. um, uh, And, and they don't like what I'm saying. Actually, I'm, I'm not saying as many hateful things as you, you obviously hate small producers, you <laughs> hate farmers. Okay. Neither of us do. We're talking about the reality of the situation. um, And we're also talking about what would really work. Okay. We just talked about breaking them up, you know, I don't like oligopolies. I deal with one. I deal with one of four every day that I travel. Uh, the airline industry is unregulated, which is not really true. They're they're still sort of quasi-regulated. There was a time when they were more regulated, but God knows when the pandemic shut things down, the four big airlines went right to Washington, D.C. and got zillions of dollars to keep them uh, solvent. So to pretend that they're not still quasi-government, because they almost are four airlines control about 82 percent of every flying mile in the united states of america they of course are american delta united united continental whatever they call it now and southwest um, we could break them up would it make a difference on the, to the flying public it's kind of the argument you're going to make uh, you already made about this i don't know you can still hop on a plane and wherever phoenix arizona and get to Dodge, you know, wherever, wherever the hell you're going to go to Detroit, go to some small town pretty efficiently. Um, That's the way you're saying is with the beef. So we're not going to probably break them up. What we're going to do instead is Joe Biden's uh, someone, a friend told him that meat prices were expensive. So he came out with a big press conference or his handlers did and said they're going to tackle, tackle meat prices. Your point on that was a billion dollars thrown at the processing infrastructure is a spit in the wind. Doesn't matter. That's what your point is.
2: Yeah, even if they're successful in what they're trying to accomplish, which I think is very debatable, I think, I think they could end up with a lot of money left in that fund, right? You know, so I think that the fact that we could even deploy that capital, you know, is, is, is very much you know, up for debate. But even if they were able to deploy that capital in the, in the manner in which they're proposing, I don't think it would have any meaningful impact on, certainly not in the short term, but even in the medium and long term have any real impact on, 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 on meat prices
1: product. for a country of 330 million. Now,
2: does it help smaller scale
1: ag? Does it help me with my 18 steers that I now have a place to go to that I didn't have, which I do have, but if, if I were that person, does it help small scale?
2: Uh, potentially. Um, if and, and if, I think if
1: facilities get built.
2: Yeah. If you were looking to, to get into that business anyway, or wanted to expand an existing business, I think it sure. It could potentially uh, help, but again, you know, on on what scale is that going to be, you know, meaningful? It's meaningful obviously to you if it's your business and maybe even to your local community, but in terms of having an impact on, you know, the meat prices that the average American pays at the grocery store, it's going to be, you know, negligible, uh, probably not even identifiable. Um, So, you know, again, I, I'm definitely not anti, you know, local and anti-small, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of great things that come along with that. I think, you know somebody going out and meeting a farmer and understanding what it takes to raise sure. an animal and, and, and educating themselves i think oh that's great that's that's great for our culture and it's great for our industry and yeah uh, i'm definitely not opposed to that but it, it's where you start talking about you know that type of you know system being a replacement for you know whatever industrial meat production and It's just it, to me it's just you know silly
1: well does the person that makes the person that grows you know, that wants to be an independent hog producer, an independent poultry producer, an independent beef producer, which they are more independent beef. um, They are left a little less on, on options. And you say, well, go to direct to consumer. You can only go direct to consumer if you have a place to process your stuff. So would the, would the biggest element of potential benefit be if it weren't 2,500 pig per day facilities, but instead, 50 pig per day or whatever. Does does this have a chance to help more the smaller it gets? I guess is the uh, way that's how it looks like to me. The only way this helps rural landscape is kind of like, and again, the consumer in New York city is not going to see this unless Unless they do go online and they find that uh, there's a process a processor in upstate New York that only brings in beef that were raised on the hills and the Adirondacks. And then maybe that consumer does get something out of it. But the scale is such that we're still talking about infinitely small amount of product.
2: Yeah. And and I think I think it could have an an impact. And I think that where you could probably see the most potential impact there is through the regulatory environment. I um, mean, that's one of the bigger challenges if you're talking about really, truly small scale processors is that in order to, and there's a lot of uh, ins and outs to this, as I'm sure you're aware of, but, um, you but know, the inspection process that ensures that our meat is safe yeah. is very, You know, some would argue it's burdensome to even the largest producers, right? But it's certainly an overwhelming burden for a small producer, to the point that they they can't really practically do that, and so if you're a small-scale beef producer that wants to sell a dozen steers a year uh, to people in your local community, the one of the biggest hurdles you're going to run into almost immediately is that you're if you're going to sell that meat, especially cuts of that, meat, right? If you're going to sell steaks, got to be inspected. Uh, then it's got to be inspected. It's got to be federally inspected or or with one of the state. Uh, approved state inspection agencies, and and very few of these processing plants are inspected because it's expensive and and so forth. And so there's a lot of uh, regulatory you know changes that have been proposed that really could have a substantial impact um, and and really improve the prospects of that type of business, but. Then you start running into some concerns about food safety. Those regulations are there for a reason. They, like most regulations, were instituted in a response to, and as a response to, you know, some food safety challenges like as, a response want to to, give as a response
1: to Upton Sinclair's muckraking novel, the jungle, which tried to put meat processors out of business
2: 120 years ago. Let's face it. That's what yep. they're all a response to. And, and And I'm very much, you know, open to, you know, looking at changes to those regulations, but that's, that's the, that's where you get hung up as people start getting really concerned about, uh, about food safety. And, and then we don't want to undo, you know, the su- su- substantial success that we've had in terms of food safety. I spent, used to spend a lot of time in China before the pandemic. They don't have those kind of safeguards, you know, and, and they don't have that trust that when they go to the supermarket that that meat is what they say it's going to be. They just don't. Um, and, and so, I, ironically, in, in China, you see a lot of people trying to go to farmers to buy, you know, product yeah. directly because they don't trust the industrial uh, system. And so well, or they, or they got go to be really a, careful with that.
1: Or they go to a wet market and buy bats. Uh, but that's a different <laughs> story. Um, yeah. Real quickly then, I guess you're, you're kind of a proponent of the system that we have. And so uh, meat prices are higher for the consumer, and yet we're still breaking even out here on the farm. And you say... That's just the way it's going to be.
2: Well, you know, I, I think, I think first of all, we have to really address the the actual challenges. Well, you know, what are the real challenges? Mm-hmm. You know, is it, is it really just a problem that we have too many big meat companies? I mean, I think that's a factor. It's something we too, have to, or too,
1: to, or too few, or too few. Big right. Companies.
2: Yeah. Too few. Um, um, you know, it, it, that, you know, that's a factor we have to have that discussion, but the bigger issues in my mind right now, we're talking about the issue that we're dealing with right now is labor. And, uh, you know, that has been an ongoing issue. I mean, if you went five years ago, in fact, five years ago, I was at a conference in Chicago and talking to uh, several meat packers. And I said, what's the biggest obstacle to you expanding shackle space? And they told me to, to a one, it was labor. That was the limiting factor. They could not expand because they could not find workers to staff the the plant um, and so that's a you know and obviously everybody's dealing with that now um, but you know that's something we've been dealing with it's very acute right now in our industry but it's been a theme you know for for years and so that's something that we have to address if you really wanted to make a difference in meat prices you got to try to figure out a way to address that um, you know that's a, that's a whole nother topic there but um, we're also in the environment of overall inflation right and so yeah, What we're talking about here is is, you know, meat inflation. And it's it's very prominent. It's it's out there. It's it's significantly higher than a lot of other areas. But we're in an overall inflationary environment. You know, used cars are up 20 some odd percent as well. Nice. So 20, 27 the,
1: percent on used cars, 50 some odd, 57 percent on diesel, 50 plus percent on yeah. gasoline. I agree with you. And by the way, this is what I was baiting you when I kept acting like you were anti farmer and all that. We know you're not. <laughs> the reality is the more stuff is touched by human hands and meat has that we're not automated soybeans don't need a lot of human touch Uh, meat, my God, you've got it at the livestock farm level and you've got it at the meat processing level. You've got it all through the system. A lot of human hands touch it. What is going on right now? We have a labor shortage because we paid people to not work, et cetera, et cetera. We shut down the economy. These are realities. So the meat thing, the meat prices at the consumer level are, while we do have an oligopolistic processing system, it is wrong to blame it on that, particularly when you've got all these other factors is what your assertion is. And I'd agree with that. Now here's a big picture. But last point, uh, if we end up sprinkling a whole bunch of small processors out here in a countryside, ultimately it's good. It's good for people like you and me that take our product there or buy our product there. And it gives one more Avenue, but in the scope of things, it's not going to contribute to a lot of supply, is what you're, uh, you and I both know, just because of the sheer numbers of stuff that goes through the meat industrial complex.
0: Yep.
2: You know, and, and even if it was successful, I mean, you're talking, we're talking about layering on a bunch of assumptions here, but even if it was successful in doing that the in terms of, of market share, let's say it was significant, that product that's going to market is going to market at a much, much higher price point than, than what people are talking about here. So if we're if we're trying to solve the problem of high meat prices by producing more high-priced meat, it, <laughs> I don't think that's going to be successful in the long term, right? Well, uh, and, and that's essentially what they are saying.
1: So imagine that a plan coming out of Washington, D.C., which you and I both read it, and we said the same thing. Wait a minute. Throwing money at something to create more margin in meat, which means we're going to have more pricey meat, is going to fix meat prices. Imagine that, something coming out of Washington, D.C., particularly from the left, that doesn't make sense. But this is on the heels, Todd, of a week ago or two, Elizabeth Warren, an avowed socialist, uh said that she was going to go after grocery stores for, for these prices. It was clearly the fault of Kroger that we had food prices because they were paying their CEOs too much.
2: And so.
1: Again.
2: Well, and then you, you, then you had Pete Buttigieg say that the solution to struggling people that are struggling to put gas in their tank was for them to go buy a hundred thousand dollar Tesla where they didn't have to put gas in their tank. I mean, well, it really is kind of a similar, you know, uh, uh, uh uh, approach there it's really like saying okay well we we have a problem with affordable cars it's not go produce more you know you know ford Fiestas or whatever you yeah. know these these smaller uh, yeah. uh cars are it's oh uh, us going to go produce you know hundred thousand dollar teslas or, or corvettes i mean it's just it, it doesn't really make any sense when you almost when you, when as, you as though the ruling
1: it. class almost as though the ruling class doesn't really understand what's happening out here
2: all <laughs> right his name is todd thurman
1: if you want to find him how do they find you todd
2: uh It's is probably the easiest way s-w-i-n-e-t-e-x.com and all my contact information is there
1: and he's he's really all over the place on linkedin he's and he's my buddy and he's also the co-host of the business of ag success group if you'd like to be a part of that please drop me a line also I want to remind you if you are a producer of agriculture looking to up your game check out the work i'm doing with extreme ag x T-R-E-M-E, extremeag.farm. Extremeag.farm is a consortium of farmers that are at the very top of their game. They win awards for their yield production, larger scale. They're doing trials for products that you may or want to use. Uh, So you can check out what we're doing there and all the great information we're putting out at extremeag.farm. All right, check out Todd, check out Extremeag. Thanks for being here. My name is Damian Mason. Until next time, it's the business of agriculture. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me.
0: This episode of The Business of Agriculture was brought to you by Land Trust. Landowners, just like you, are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use. Millions of recreators actively seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Owners of farm and ranch properties are partnering with Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit landtrust.com slash boa as in Business of Agriculture to learn more. That's landtrust.com slash BOA.